All right, it's good to be with you guys today. My name is Matt Carter, the lead pastor here at Sagemont. Thank you so much for coming. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter 3, 8. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, We're going to have the scriptures behind me on the screen. We'll get there in just a minute. 1 Peter 3, 8. We're in a little two-week series. We started it last week. If you missed it, you can go back the website or the app and listen to it. We're in a two-week series we're calling I Speak Jesus. And we're continuing to go through the book of 1 Peter. And we're in a section where Peter is talking about the calling on the life of a believer to respond differently than the world when it comes to conflict, specifically our words. Peter's talking about our words, our mouths, our tongues, and how that we are to respond to insults against us with blessing. That we respond to evil spoken against us with blessing. And last week I talked about how that is unbelievably difficult to do, right? When somebody insults you or says something negative or evil about you, the last thing in the world that you want to do is be kind to them or bless them. As a matter of fact, most of us, our natural instinct is to do the opposite of that. I was reading this week, I've actually heard this before, but I was reading this story about Winston Churchill, um, famous guy from World War II in England. And this lady named Lady Astor did not like him, didn't like his attitude, didn't like how he carried himself, um, was really disgusted with the guy's behavior. So Lady Astor walked up to Winston Churchill one day and said, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. And he looked back at her and said, well, madam, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. (laughs) Now that kind of response feels right, doesn't it? I've always wished that I could have that ability. When somebody says something negative to me that I would be quick-witted enough to be able to respond like that. There's something about that that feels right to our flesh But we're going to see today that the calling on the life of the believer is literally the opposite of that. That we are to be people that respond to those sort of insults with kindness and blessing. Last week, Peter showed us two things about how to live it out. Number one is you got to change your beliefs. You got to change your beliefs to get to the place where you believe that responding kindly to that kind of stuff is the best course of action. And the second thing we got to do is we got to change our mindset. We gotta change our mindset. Um, he, uh, in, in verse eight, we looked at how Peter gave us five mental attributes that are absolutely necessary for you to possess, for you to even be able to have the ability to ever do anything like that. He talked about how we have to have unity of mind, sympathy, which means that you share the person's feelings, brotherly love, a tender heart, which means you care about their pain, and, uh, and humility. And we finished last week talking about how at the bottom of all of this, what gives us our ability to actually live this out is our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when someone doesn't deserve it and when they haven't earned it, how in the world do we respond to an insult against us with blessing? How in the world do we do that? The only way we'll ever do that is when you realize that when you didn't deserve it and you hadn't earned it, Christ blessed you by dying for your sins on the cross. That all this is founded in the gospel. 
It really is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Well, today we're gonna look at two final things that Peter says on this subject, okay? Keep in mind, again, I'm gonna say this a couple times, just remind us, the context of this whole thing is our words, okay? And first thing he's gonna show us today is there's a third thing that has to change in us. Change our beliefs, change our mindset, and then there's a third thing that has to change for us to be people that respond to insult with blessing. And then the last thing he's gonna do is he's gonna show us the consequences of what happens if we just blow this off. We decide we don't wanna do it, right? So let's jump in. First Peter 3, 8, where we left off last week. I'll read it. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you might obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And so, so far, Peter said, look, if you're ever gonna live this out, be a person that responds, blessing from reviling, change your beliefs, Number two, you gotta change your mindset. And then in verse 11, in the next verse, he's gonna tell us the final thing that has to change for us to be able to do this. Look at verse 11. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Again, keep in mind, the whole context of this is our words, it's our speech, specifically in conflict. And the final thing that, Peter tells us that has to change in order for us to live this out. Peter just said, and I'll show you why in a minute. Peter said, you gotta change your direction. You gotta change your course. You gotta be a person that turns away from evil and begins to seek and be a pursuer of peace. Okay, that's the change of direction. Let me explain that. Understand what I'm talking about. Though we've gotta change our course We've got to change our direction. I want to quickly go over two verses that we looked at last week. First one is in Proverbs 18, 21. Don't turn there. We're going to go back to 1 Peter, but let me read it to you. Right of Proverbs is talking about our tongues, and he says, the tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue has the power of life and death. Proverbs tells us that your tongue has incredible power. It has immense power that your tongue has the ability, has the power to either create an environment of life or your tongue has the power to create an environment of death. And that's pretty intense, okay? Then in James chapter three, verse six, now listen carefully, James tells us what kind of environment our tongues typically create, okay? James 3, six. So the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course or sets the course of one's whole life on fire. Okay, now listen, when James was describing our tongues, here's what he said. And this is key because a lot of us, when we think about our mouths, when we think about our words, we think about our tongues, we just kind of have a tendency to think about them as not good or evil, just kind of neutral. Sometimes we can go either way. But when describing our tongues, the scripture said, number one, that they're evil. Number two, it says they corrupt our whole body. Number three, that they set the 
whole course of our life on fire. All right, now everybody look at me here because I want want you to catch this one thing because it's gonna be critical for us understanding this. Listen carefully. When describing our tongues, when describing our mouths, the scripture said our tongue has the power of life and has the power of death. But what James is saying here, listen, is that the typical natural instinctive path or course that our tongues love to go down is a path of evil. It's a path of destruction. That that's the natural path. That's the the most likely path that your tongue and my tongue like to go down. It is a path of destruction and of evil. And in my experience, that's true. I'll share with you guys, I guess it's about a year ago, that statement that, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. And I talked about that that was maybe, hands down, the dumbest statement in the history of the English language. (laughs) Because every bone I've ever broken, I've healed from it. But there are words that people have spoken to me years ago, decades ago, and I still carry the wounds of those things that they said to me. I shared, I think in that same sermon that I had a really beloved family member that I deeply love and respect, still do. I was a little kid, I think I was seven or eight years old. He he might've been kidding with me, I don't know. It didn't seem like it at the time, but I was messing around doing something dumb and he looked at me and said, Matt, you're never gonna be anything but a used car salesman. There's something about that that's stuck in me. And it doesn't matter what I've accomplished in my life. It's, it doesn't matter what I've been able to be a part of in my life. To this statement, to this day, that statement impacts the way I view myself. Um, I was, my wife's told me a story several times. When she was a little girl, six, seven years old, same age, um, she went to the doctor's office. My, my wife was not overweight when she was a little kid. She was just a normal kid. But I guess she gained a little weight on her chart from the one uh, visit to the next. Doctor walks in, looks at her chart, looks at her and says, well, fatso, fatso, fatso. And as a little girl, that's, that's stuck. And she'll tell you that at times she struggles with body image to this very day. I bet most of you could probably tell a similar story. Why? Because these tiny things called our tongues hold immense power. Immense power to negatively affect the course of our lives. And that's what James is saying. Saying it's not always the case, but the typical path, the normal path, the instinctual path or course that our tongues are walking down is a course of evil. Okay? And what he's saying here is that if we want to love life, if we want to see good days, we got to change directions. We gotta change the course, the natural course of our words from evil to good. Let me read this to you. First Peter 3.10. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking to see. Now look at verse 11 there. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. The key phrase there is turn away, okay? In the Greek, that literally means You change direction. You change your course, all right? Here's Peter's whole point. Guys, if you wanna change your marriage, you gotta change your words. If you wanna change your relationships, 
with your family members. You need to change your words. If you want to change your Christian witness on a daily basis, you've got to change your words. And if that's ever going to happen, you've got to change the normal, natural path of your tongue and your words. And you've got to change directions and start pursuing good now. What is this good that we're supposed to be pursuing when we change directions from evil to good? The scripture tells us, look at verse 11 again. Let him turn away from evil and do good. And here it is. It says, and let him seek peace and pursue it. Okay? Here's a summary of everything Peter has taught us about how we become a people that when someone insults us or reviles us or speaks evil against us, that we're able by the Spirit of God to respond to that with blessing again. Number one, you change your beliefs. You believe it's the best course of action. Number two, you change your mindset. You, have a, you become a sympathetic, tender-hearted, humble person. And now listen, last thing he says you gotta change. You change the natural course of your words from evil to good, and you do that by becoming a seeker of peace. That's the change of course. That's the change of direction. That's evil, here's good. And this is what good looks like, that you and I become a seeker or a pursuer of peace, specifically in conflict. Let me stop right there and ask you a question. Would you describe yourself as a seeker of peace? And more importantly, would the people around you that are closest to you, would they describe you? as a seeker of peace, okay? Um, the implication here of the scripture is that when it comes to our words, that's not the path most of us are on. Most of us need to change the direction to become seekers of peace. It's true. I've met a lot of people, even believers, that if I had to be honest, I wouldn't describe them as seekers of peace. I would say that they're honestly seekers of conflict. You ever, you met a person that like, this guy's looking for conflict. This woman is argumentative. This woman loves a good fight. It's like they're just walking around looking for somebody to revile them. And they're like, I've been waiting for this my whole life. It's on, let's go. They're, they're seekers of conflict. There's one that I think hits a little bit closer to home to a lot of, well, let me back up, let me say this. Some of you in the room, that, that is you. You are argumentative. You, you, you kind of like conflict. And if that's you, the calling on our lives is to change directions and to become a seeker of peace, okay? Um, but let's bring this a little closer to home. There's a lot of us out there that are not really seekers of conflict, but here's what we're seekers of. We're not seekers of conflict, we're seekers of being right. You know what I'm talking about? We love being right. Hate being misunderstood. This is me, by the way. Hate being mischaracterized. Hate being thought negatively of. So when someone says something negative to you, that your natural, instinctive reaction is to defend yourself or to argue them down or tell them why they're wrong, but that's not seeking peace. That's seeking being right, okay? And so if that's you, what Peter's calling us to today is saying, look, you gotta change your direction. You gotta stop doing that. You gotta turn away from that evil and start being a pursuer or a seeker of peace. <clears throat> let's take a minute, let's get our minds around what that means. Like, what does it mean to seek peace? What does that look like? 
Well, the word that Peter uses for seek, when he says seek peace, is an intense word in the Greek language. It's an intense word. Really strong phrase. It's a word that means to passionately and diligently look for something. So he's saying we're supposed to be seekers of peace. He's not saying, hey, we desire peace. We want peace. But we're passionately, diligently pursuing peace. As a matter of fact, the context that that word was most often used was in hunting. It was, it was in like pursuing prey. That's when it was often used. It's an intense word. You know, and I'll give you an analogy here. One of the things I love about Sagemont Church is how many hunters and fishermen we have at Sagemont. I love that about it, because that wasn't the way it was in my, in my church in Austin back in the day. In my church in Austin, um, folks were a lot more likely, they were, bunch, they were hipsters, they were much more likely to go to a food and wine festival than they were to ever go hunting. And true story, I used to put my, because I, I kill stuff, I'm sorry, I kill stuff, and, and I would put the deer heads on my walls in my office, true story, after about a year, I ended up having to take them down because so many people were coming to my office and getting offended. And so um, you want to know the real reason why I'm at Stage Month. That's it right there. <laughs> that is it. So anyway, if you're here and you're not a hunter, that's okay. I still love you. But here's the thing you need to know about us hunters is the beginning of hunting season, rifle season, starts about November 1st. Okay, That's the beginning of hunting season. But the opening day or the beginning of hunting season for real hunters really is the end of a process of a long time of seeking, okay? Starting in spring, we start looking for a place to put a deer stand. You know, natural pathway for deer, it's near some water. And then when we find the perfect place, then we go out and we plant what's called a food plot. And that's where you plant oats or winter wheat or alfalfa, which attracts the deer so you can shoot them while they're eating. And then <laughs> after you plant a food plot, then you buy a really expensive camera that you put on like a pole or a tree or something that takes pictures of the deer when they come out and sends them by satellite or something to your cell phone. And so you can choose the deer that you want to actually shoot. And then you, you try to figure out like what are the exact weather patterns and the time of day and like the moon cycles that this perfect deer is coming out. And then you go spend enormous amount of time and money and energy sighting in your rifle and buying camo and like spraying yourself down so you don't smell bad. And then as the opening day approaches, you begin the process that's been going on for months and you basically ignore and neglect your family for about two months until you kill this deer and it's hanging on your wall. <clears throat> that's literally, literally in the Greek, a picture of what Peter's saying. Go look it up. To seek peace means that you're just diligently and passionately pursuing peace. I think this looks like pretty simple. I think as a seeker of peace, when someone speaks evil against you or they insult you, in that moment, you care so much more about peace than, than you do conflict. When someone says something negative to you or speaks evil against you in that moment, 
A seeker of peace is someone that deeply desires to be loving more than you desire to be right. I think a, a seeker of peace is someone that when someone speaks evil against you or insults you, you, you desire and pursue de-escalation more than you pursue vindication, okay? That's a picture of a person who's changed their direction and is now diligently and passionately pursuing peace. I'm gonna ask you one more time, does that define you? Does that describe your interactions in the midst of conflict? If we're honest, most of us, the answer is no, and that's why Peter says you gotta turn around. You gotta change your course. First Peter 3.10 Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Okay. Now, I'm gonna start laying in the plane on this sermon because that's really the whole point. I'm gonna start giving some illustrations of what this looks like. I wanna tell you two stories, then I'm gonna tell you the consequences of whether or not you live it out and we'll be done. One of these stories is an, a time where I did not seek peace. I sought being right. And my words created an environment of death. The other story is a time where I, I did seek peace and uh, instead of being right. And my words created an environment of life. And this first story, I want to tell you, is a really difficult one for me to, to share. I've only told the story one other time, and it was years ago, I think it was in 2002, pretty shortly after this happened, and I haven't shared it since. But, um, and the reason I'm, I've never shared it since then is this, it's honestly one of the biggest regrets of my entire life, probably top two or three. So I was in my first youth pastorate, back at A&M, small church, I was 21 years old, and... Um, I was kind of learning to preach and that sort of thing. And I was doing a lesson and um, I'd been walking with Jesus for a few years and I knew enough Bible to be dangerous. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And, and so I'm doing a lesson one day and this young guy walks in. He's probably 17, maybe he's 18, maybe he's 19. I don't remember, but he was young. And as I was teaching the lesson, he starts arguing with me. And he's being super disrespectful. And it was... It was just kind of a weird, tense moment because he was being disrespectful and was being argumentative. And I didn't really, we didn't get into it or anything, but I calmed him down. And then after the lesson, we started talking and I found out he was an atheist. Did not believe in God. Like, Why are you there? He's like, well, my mom made me come. So I began to talk to him and began to ask him questions about his life. And I found out that his dad had abused him. Um all through his childhood, and then recently his dad had left their family altogether, so him and his mom were coming back to church even though he didn't want to be there. And um, his mom and him did not have a good relationship, and so all that was impacting his view of God, and he just came to the place, he goes, I don't believe any of this. And you're like, Matt, you're stupid for believing it, okay? And so I was too young and too immature, and honestly too dumb to realize that his behavior 
was not coming out of atheism. It was coming out of a place of deep pain in his life. So we started having this series of conversations about God. And in my mind, my 21-year-old mind, I'm like, I've got to prove this guy wrong. I've got to show him I'm right. I need to defend God. I need to show him that the Bible's true and that God is real. So we'd have these conversations. He'd ask me a question and I'd answer him. And sometimes those debates got a little bit heated. Now, I didn't scream at him. I didn't call him names or anything like that. But he was so disrespectful towards God. He was so disrespectful towards the church that I remember being offended. And that would come out. And, and, and I was just, I mean, I remember kind of raising my voice and just being really passionate. And, and that's sort of what our meetings look like. And one day he disappeared. Stopped coming around. I figured that he just finally talked to his mom into not going to church anymore. But about a week later, I found out that that young man committed suicide. And uh, when I heard the news, it, it was like a it was like a punch in the gut. I that's to put it mildly. Um, there's a lot of things I'd change in my life, but. I'd give just about anything to go back and and relive that part of my life. And I'm going to tell you why, because that young man did not need to be argued with. He needed to be loved. He didn't need a, a man yelling at him about why he was wrong about the Bible. He needed a man putting his arms around him and saying, hey man, it's okay for you to ask hard questions. I'm here for you. He didn't need an argumentative, arrogant, theologian, apologist. He needed a tender-hearted, sympathetic friend and pastor. But that's not what I did. That didn't happen. Because of my arrogance and my stupidity, frankly, I cared more about being right than I cared about diligently and passionately pursuing and seeking peace. Now, had I done that, had I been those things for him, had I been loving, had I been caring, had I cared more about listening than talking, had I been a pastor and not an apologist, then had I pursued peace, then I think there was possibly a chance that my words could have created an environment of life and he could have heard the gospel and been healed of his pain. I learned a hard lesson that day. I knew it, but I'd forgotten it, that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And so I made a vow to myself that was never gonna happen again, especially with people that didn't believe. So uh, here's my second story. That story leads to the second story. I shared a portion of this story about a year ago I'm going to give you the other aspect of it that I didn't share. About three years ago, I was invited by the United States government to be a part of a delegation that flew to Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan was wanting to change their policy on religion. They wanted to be known for religious freedoms, and they weren't at the time. So a bunch of 
pastors, four or five of us, and statesmen and stuff from the government, flew to Uzbekistan, and we did this four-day retreat where we met each other, hung out with each other, different religions. You had uh, Muslims, imams, like pastors of Muslims, and American Christian pastors, and you had Christian pastors from Uzbekistan and Muslim imams from Uzbekistan, and we just hung out together for about four days. It was fascinating. It was hands down one of the most fascinating things I'd ever done. One of the things that happened is I got paired with a Muslim imam from the United States. And we basically spent three, three and a half days hanging out together the whole time. We spent a ton of time talking together. We had all our meals together. And during that time, one of the things we did is we spent a lot of time talking about what Christians' perspective of Muslims are. And then we spent a ton of time talking about what Muslims' perspective of Christians are. And as we'd share our meals together, we got to know each other. We talked about our families. We talked about our, our faiths and why we believed what we believed. And through the course of those three days, I was very intentional about how I was gonna engage with this guy that believed differently than me than I did with that young man back in the day. And I made a, made a commitment. I was gonna be a pursuer of peace. Now listen, it doesn't mean I'm not gonna be a pursuer of truth, but it's how I did it that was different. I was gonna pursue peace and, and Ephesians 4.15 was the driving force behind all of it. Let me read this to you. Ephesians 4.15, it says, speaking the truth in love. Did y'all catch that? Being kind does not mean compromising. That's the foundation of all of it. Speak the truth in love. Now, listen, here's what I didn't do. Again, I didn't compromise on my beliefs at all during those four days, not at all. I boldly proclaim the truths of the scripture, um, why I believe that Jesus Christ was the only way to the Father. He's the only way to God, but I did it with kindness and I did it with love. I listened to him, I got to know him, I served him. When we started debating about our faith and we Baited, I did it with kindness and I did it with love. And during the course of those three days, something crazy happened. Y'all ready? This is gonna blow your socks off. We became friends. I know. It's crazy. We became friends. And here's the other thing that happened is I completely shattered his stereotype of what he thought Christians were like. Fast forward three years to last week. Kid you not, this happened last week. I get a text from Matia. And Matia sent me a picture. He lives in Texas. He woke up one morning last week to go to work and he found this sign right here in his yard. Muslims, you're unclean to God. It's a pig is to you. Have your idolatry washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And then has the really disgusting pig at the top of it. And by the way, 
Guess who found that sign in his yard? His 11-year-old daughter. So let me ask you a question. When his 11-year-old daughter comes in and says, Dad, you need to see this, you think he walked out, read it, got on his knees and gave his life to Jesus. No. Scared him to death. Scared his daughter to death. It angered him, just as it would you if something similar happened. So he sent me the picture. When I saw it, I was, gosh, it broke my heart. And so I responded back to him. I said, my good friend, this is not the way of Jesus. On behalf of real Christians, please forgive us. I'm so, so sorry. Here was his response. He said, brother, happy to hear from you. Thank you for your support and kindness, of course. I know what a true Christian means, especially since meeting you. Support from you guys and many local churches here is immense. Hope all is going well in Houston. Now listen, guys, I want to be super clear on something. If this guy and his wife and kids are going to go to heaven, they must turn from their sin and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the Father rose him from the grave. That is the only way that him and his family will make it to heaven. And when we met, I told him that very thing. But, it, but here's the question. Which of those two approaches is more likely to have the end result of my friend Atiyah becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Speaking the truth in love as I pursue peace with him or comparing him and his wife and kids to pigs. Which one of those is more likely to produce him becoming a follower of Christ? I think you and I know the answer. Look at the text one final time. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. It's not easy to do, but the world desperately needs it. Saw a bumper sticker the other day, I think sums up this whole thing. It says, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a secret battle. Can I get an amen? amen? Be kind because everybody you meet is struggling. Everybody you meet is hurting. Everybody you meet is going through stuff. And your words are going to either help create an environment of life that draws them to Jesus. Or your words are going to create an environment of death that's just going to push them away from you and from the Lord. So would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to do it? Would you be willing to commit to do it?
Because if you don't, I want you to listen quickly. I'm, I'm done here, but I want you to listen to quickly to what Peter says are the consequences for whether or not we live this out. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? In verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Guys, he is talking about our words. He's not talking about just generic evil out there. The context is how we speak to one another. He's like, if you live this out, if you walk in this, the face of the Lord will shine upon you and he will hear your prayers. But if you do not, if you don't turn away from evil in your life, it's just the face of the Lord is against you. And I don't have time to go into what that means, but it doesn't sound good to me. So would you be willing to do it? If you're anything like me, you're gonna need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this on a daily basis. It's not easy. So I'll end with this. It hit me one day last week as I was preparing for this. It just dawned on me who was writing these words. Sagemont, who just wrote those words? Who, who wrote the words, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless? Who wrote those words? Peter. Peter. Why does that matter? Because Peter, on the night that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Roman soldiers came walking out to arrest Jesus, it was Peter that took the sword and lopped off a guy's ear. And let me give you a little secret. Peter wasn't aiming for the guy's ear. He was aiming for his head. He was trying to kill him. Why did he do that? because the Roman soldiers deserved it. They were coming to arrest an innocent man. They were coming to arrest a man that had never sinned. They were coming to arrest his best friend and later on, they were gonna kill him. They deserved it. So he pulled out his sword and he let it fly. But Jesus stops him. Think about that. These are the men that are about to kill him. And Jesus stops Peter, says, Peter, that's not how we do things here. And in one of the most amazing parts of the Bible, Jesus reached up and healed the man's ear. I'm convinced, decades later, when Peter was an old man, he's in some room writing the letter of 1 Peter that he remembered that moment. That when he pulled out a sword and tried to kill a guy, Jesus healed him. And with tears running down the old man's face, I think Peter wrote those words. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you have been called. I'll tell you, if the Holy Spirit can change Peter, he can change you and me. Amen? The world desperately needs it. Our marriages need it. 
Gosh, we need it. So let's ask the Lord to do that in us.